As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by one of the Dadly Boys, Michael Sidgwick from What Culture, to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts, where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also AEW Rampage, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, pay-per-views. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a roundup of the week complete with a bloody quiz of course on WrestleCulture as I said though joined by Michael Sidgwick to review AEW Dynamite Michael Hamlet still enjoying that well-earned week off and what did you make of the all-out go-home show for Dynamite Sidge? Well I'm hyped as hell for all out which should answer your question I thought this functioned tremendously as a go-home show without being an absolutely perfect episode of episodic television in and of itself there were certain flaws there were certain developments that I was just perplexed at why I should care. <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, we'll get to that goddamn rubbish later. Um, we're still not at that February 2020 peak mm. where literally everything, top to bottom, was virtually flawless, and it was awesome. The reasons for that will become apparent as we review this show. There are certain creaking, boring white men polluting this television show, and I'm starting to get goddamn sick of it because I know how good it can be. Mm. However, as a go-home show, knowing that TV is a more lucrative revenue stream than anything else, so it balances payoffs in addition to hype and anticipation, this was beautiful mostly. And I know I do this as a gimmick often, but and we'll talk about it in more detail. I just want to get your quick reaction to, quite possibly, the best 54-second build to a match ever. Yes. I, I mean, I've, I've literally written it verbatim, yes. so we'll get to that in due course. Let's start uh, with FTR versus Santana and Ortiz, as you sort of called. Uh, this opened the show. Uh, I'll run through the action, and then we'll we'll talk about what happened, because I know you had concerns going into that, and see if this match uh, addressed that uh, lovely touch. Of course, FTR wearing the Bobby Eaton-inspired gear, really like that. Santana Ortiz coming out in their face paint to show they're really bloody taking it seriously. Uh, we start off with uh, Dax Harwood and Santana. Um, 
very even, of course, these two teams. Uh, breaks down basically to a free-for-all. Santana and Ortiz take him out to the floor with a clothesline and hit a wonderful double dive through there, which I know you enjoyed. Uh, they whip FTR into the barricade, and Santana flips off Ortiz's back into both of them. Uh, in the end, though, FTR recover. They do one of those blind tags where he just reaches behind him, still hand-slapping, not back-slapping, none of that bollocks, basically. Uh, all serious stuff here. And they take control. Uh, they send Ortiz um, into the, the into the post, and I think that's when they go to a break. When we come back, uh, FTR still in control. Cash has ripped off the turnbuckle pad, and they're trying to use that whilst the uh, official is distracted. Uh, Santana stops them. Ortiz comes back. Uh, Santana basically makes a one-man comeback later on against both of FTR, hits the three amigos, gets a huge reaction from the crowd, goes for a frog splash, nails that, two count off the back of that. Uh, Santana and Ortiz then hit that double team wheelbarrow cutter and a German suplex but Cash comes in to break up the fall Dax hits that spike brain buster which of course won them the match previously uh, for a great near fall Santana and Ortiz go uh, for the street sweeper Dax breaks it up Cash hits a gory special face buster for a near fall and then they're setting up for that one where one of them hits a superplex and the other one hits a dive on the ropes but Santana and Ortiz foil that um they did manage to hit the big rig, though, to get a uh, near fall broken up by Santana with a big dive right at the last second. So then Santana hit a rolling cutter, Ortiz hit a long blower, Santana hit a thrust kick, and then they hit that double team inside-out suplex. One, two, three, Santana and Ortiz finally defeat FDR. I mentioned at the beginning there you had concerns, uh, particularly off the back of the last match. Did this match allay them for you? Yes, this was... Excellent. I still think they have a better match in them. Mm -hmm. uh, bad news, good news first, because, you know, I'm a glass half full guy. Mm. And I like to leave people with a nice feeling. <laughs> so the bad news was FDR's heat sequence dragged somewhat, mm. lulled somewhat at the midway point. Um, there was one kind of awkward timing miscue that I was a little bit confused by. Deeper into the match before that electrifying finish. Was that the superplex bit? Yeah, he, like, he was almost like waiting to be caught on the top rope to break it all up. Yeah, just a slight, slight timing miscue But there. I suppose you could argue, oh, he was still getting in position because his arm, he couldn't quite lift himself. Well, anything? that's yeah. another thing. Um, they tried to play off the story of the original match, as all great sequels should do. Um, so I think that was a part of it. And I don't know if it didn't work because it wasn't articulated enough by the commentary team when they tried to do um, a callback to the spot mm -hmm. with Cash's arm, the commentators should have sold that with abject terror and they kind of lost it yeah. altogether. But beyond that, FTR in the opening three minutes of this match were absolutely sensational. The function of an amazing Southern style heel team is to be in position with Swiss watch timing to make the baby faces look like these athletic wonders. The first three minutes, they were exceptional in that role. Mm. They made Santana and Ortiz, and you know, I'm not saying they carried them, but I'm saying their role in this match, in this genre, they made them look absolutely awesome. That was great. The middle was a little bit baggy, but the timing on everything, like the timing on that big rig save, one of the closest near falls I can remember in quite some time. That was tremendous. The Using the brain buster as a near fall was tremendous. And it was almost, it's like it, there was nothing serendipitous about that first match at all. 
But if you're going to use anything from it, you've restored the power of a signature move effectively mm. by using it as a near fall in the sequel. That was tremendous. Um, the all-action save spree in the finale really elevated this match after that baggy middle. And I still think they have an even better match yeah. in them. Maybe we'll see it. Maybe not. But at the very least, following that match, and I didn't have this feeling at all after the first, even before the injury, I would desperately love to see this get ran back. The gear looked incredible. They should simply wear that all of the time. Loved it. It wasn't just a beautiful tribute. They looked awesome. Yeah. They looked like a totally beautiful, modernized 80s tag team wearing them. Yep, this is great. I still think they have better in them. Maybe they're holding back on that match, because I agree. I think there was still, you know, it's it's it was far better than the last one, which was which had its issues before the injury. Maybe they're waiting to, to run it back later down the line when maybe Santana and Ortiz are tag champs, because we've discussed in the past that possibly them being the ones to take the tag titles uh, off the Young Bucks. Of course, the team that really should do that is 2.0, and they came next. Uh, they were stood there with their, quote, son, Daniel Garcia. Um, they talked about, you know, the big CM Punk versus Darby Allen match. They said, excited about it. Not to see the match, to take the match away because they're going to beat the shit out of Darby Allen, basically. Uh, and Garcia cut a promo because he's going to be facing Darby Allen on Rampage this week, saying he was going to twist Darby Allen's body and hurt him in ways he couldn't imagine. Only my only issue is this: is just they probably just sliced spliced in that footage of him torturing Matt Seidel because I just love that submission. That he yeah, does. absolutely. Uh, and that was followed by a promo by CM Punk. Uh, I basically, I apologise for this in advance, just said your tweet on the news about this. I did give you credit for it, but you nailed it, so we'll talk about it in a second. Because uh, he comes out, he milks the, you know, milks. He appreciates the uh, CM Punk chance, asks if we're sick of him yet. He says, it's all too good be, to be true. I could spend weeks, months just feeling all this love. There might be some people who are getting tired of it real fast, but he isn't one of them. He's doing his best, his best to enjoy it while it lasts. He knows on Sunday and Starby Allen, this all could end. He's not wrestled in seven years, he reminds us. He's nervous, maybe even scared. There's a you still got it chant going on in amongst all this. Uh, he said, knowing that it all could end, though, he's got a promise for us. He promises that every time he laces up his boots and comes down that aisle, he'll give us Bang! In comes Daniel Garcia in 2.0. 2.0, mark it down in the history books. The first people to lay out CM Punk. Brilliant. They beat him down. Punk did get some offense in. He saw him coming. The crowd reaction. He's not a complete dumbass baby face, basically. But the numbers game, obviously, catches up to him. They beat him down uh, until Darby Allen and Sting make the save. They come out to even the odds. Uh, they beat all of them down. They all hit their finishers. Scorpion death drop, coffin drop, and a GTS on, I believe it was Jeff from uh, the uh, from 2.0. He hit it on. Huge bap from that. And then it was Sting's turn to get on the microphone as, oh, what a shot that was. Darby Allen and CM Punk go forehead to forehead. Uh, Sting says, look, he's always wanted to share a ring with CM Punk. Mucho respect. <laughs> uh, it didn't quite say it like that. <laughs> it just tickled me that he says it. It's like when he says the first line after he beats Hogan. I can't remember. 
He says like, I think he's, I can't remember, but he says something absolutely ridiculous for someone who hasn't spoken in about 18 months. Uh, anyway, he says, the path never did cross. Uh, all these years have gone by. That was then, this is now. Speaking of now, felt very good to watch her go to sleep happen before his very own eyes and see a coffin drop and just felt good to be all together and clear all that traffic together. Look, he says he doesn't want anything to, to get in the way, anything to stop this match on Sunday. Uh, he says that includes him. He says, this Sunday, Derby's ready. CM Punk is ready. He's going to fist punt Derby and all out. It'll be showtime for sure. And if Gallagher just confirms on the commentary, that means Sting will not be ringside for this match, which I thought was a great touch. And you said on Twitter, which I'm just going to let you talk about now, how this was time to perfection. It was absolutely time to perfection. Of course it was because this is the go-home show. Um, we'd seen this wonderful, life-affirming, really warm Series of appearances by CM Punk, the human being, Phil Brooks, putting on like a really sort of profound, not performance, that's almost my tiny little niggling problem with it. It wasn't a performance at all, and therefore didn't really feel like a pro wrestling storyline that you can't wait to see the conclusion of. They knew this. They knew it was time to flip the switch and turn Phil Brooks into CM Punk. And again, with... The very second, the very second, I thought, this one again, oh, no, of course, they're cleverer than that. Of course they are. You got CM Punk, forehead to forehead with Darby Allen. You got CM Punk selling a beat down. You got CM Punk, as you mentioned, going, right, I'm not an idiot. I can see what's coming here, and I've got balls. I'm going to go down swinging. He did precisely that. His punches in the corner, they got such little evidence to analyze of is Punk back on the briefest glimpse we got, which was all we needed. Yeah. Because you want to see so much more of this. Oh, we have to pay $50 to see it. Well, of course, I saw that brief tantalizing glimpse. All of this was measured to total perfection. I love the nose-to-nose, forehead-to-forehead thing. It's like, they're going to have a fight. They respect each other, but they are going to have a fight, and CM Punk's going to wrestle. All of that was great. His punches looked great. The GTS was pitch perfect. One of my favorite things about the segment is that Sting, and this is magical, incidentally, has somehow been presented as, I remember how the kids in 1988 felt about the Stinger. We're going to make 35-year-olds feel that about 62-year-old Sting. (laughs) And the magic is Sting can go to a standard where he can pull off that role. Sting, who has somehow been presented as this ageless, mythical icon, put over this match by saying, oh, it's way bigger than me. Like, bigger than Sting. Mm. When Sting is being Sting on TNT, it feels, again, magically... Like, nothing's bigger than that. And he was like, well, this is way bigger than me. It's like, he's the icon. Lovely little touch. We know it wouldn't have made any sense whatsoever for Sting to be at ringside to do his sort of uh, really endearing, nostalgia shtick. Doesn't fit the context of the match. This was the decision they had to make. But framing the decision like this, showtime, but not for me, really put over how enormous this match was. I got the glimpse of really real CM Punk that I needed sense of competitive animosity that just about went over the line of this mutual respect, electrifying tease of what CM Punk can do. Awesome, awesome, awesome. You can tell I've been watching two days of WWE prior to this because when he was cutting that promo, I was like, this is great. Mamacita, that's what he yelled after he didn't speak for ages. I've just remembered. But (laughs) because of my WWE head, I was like, 
oh my God, he's going to name, name himself special guest referee. And I was like, don't do it. Don't do it. Please, no, don't do it. And then, of course, he just went, no. Like you say, put the match over huge, quite right. Um, and just like you say, the, the brief glimpses of the, the, the punches in the corner and the GTS, obviously. And, uh, and yeah, there's the story of Darby Allen saving CM Punk to make sure maybe that's going to be repeated on Friday. We'll talk more about that, of course, in the AEW Rampage preview tomorrow. And then uh, they can do Punk and Garcia on Dynamite. Oh, or Punk versus 2.0, and that's his first loss. Just <laughs> uh, right, we had a video package for Kenny Omega versus Christian Cage with all the uh, you know people on the broadcasters saying what they thought about it all, and Paul White finished by saying, all out might be the worst night of Omega's life. Lovely touches all amongst that. And then we got the sit-down interview with MJF, introduced by Tony Schiavone as the most disgusting and despicable individual he's ever met. Thanks for this, Tony. It's so awesome how Tony Schiavone, and they've done this literally since day one, Yeah, where Tony Schiavone, I think on the very first Dynamite, and he's a cocky prick, and the magic of how this puts over MJF is that everyone hates him in that company. Like, if you remember the Revolution match, sorry, I'm talking over you here. The magic of the revolution match is like Cody was about to whip him with a belt. And the ref, I think it was Paul Turner, was like, no, no, no. And Cody gestured towards him to say, like, oh, it's, him. it's him. He's like, ah, go on, man. He can have one because everyone hates him. And it's it rules. And it's so effective that Tony Schiavone hates him because Tony Schiavone, to glorious, just so charming effect, plays the guy who loves everything about AEW. Ah, oh, it's a flip. Like, like in 2040. You'll see someone do a tope suicida, and you'll still love it. He loves AEW. Britt Baker's a heel, ostensibly, and he's there doing the DMD with yeah. her. Yeah. He loves everything about his job, this company, this organization. He is the soul of it, and he hates MGF because, of course, he does, because MGF's an arsehole. And he's going to have to be the one to introduce the new world champion MGF down the line, oh, of course, yes. and hold the mic for him. Oh, anyway, MJF uh, cutting this promo ahead of his match with Jericho at All Out. Runs through all of his, uh, his nicknames over the years, of course. Talks about Jericho being on top for four decades of, of professional wrestling. He said, look, you're going to be etched into the uh, Mount Rushmore of professional wrestling. But then when I was said done, I'll take your place. We'll probably change you after that. Uh, he says, look, Jericho, you've got... Uh, sorry, he talks about the, the shoes he's got to fill. Uh, he says, like Muhammad Ali... You're just coming back one too many times, basically. You're on a downward spiral. He talks about the, the, these these issues that Jericho is having more and more often. But Jericho is this addict. He needs the spotlight. And that's why he's foolishly basically put his career on the line. And at All Out, MJF will end one of the greatest runs in professional wrestling. It is poetic, he says, that the same yearning that brought Chris Jericho to the dance will be the reason the music dies this is why I love MJF's promos because, you know, in terms of what we always say, put your opponent over but still say, it's going to be bad news for you on Sunday. Personified there. His delivery was exceptional. The content of the promo was brilliant. It was almost chilling. It was that he struck that note of, oh, can you really be saying things like that? Like calling Muhammad Ali's brain scrambled and stuff. It was just... Oh, but he's a heel, so he can, yeah. Indeed. You know, enough time has passed. It's yeah. not cheap. Um, yeah, this was incredible. Dark tone, and it had to be. It had to be. He's doing the big sell for the pay-per-view. His delivery was exceptional. The tone was brilliant. I was most impressed with 
it's got such a wonderful rhythmic delivery mm. where you can just it's like a scatter gun. You can rattle, 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 rattle off his spiel. And he did that a wonderful effect by chronologically running through all of Chris Jericho's nicknames. And in about what four or five seconds of TV time, with his wonderful delivery, this is before he even says anything, and what he said was brilliant and affecting and you know, very much on the edge, as we said. Before he even said anything, he's captured the sheer heft, longevity, versatility mm. of Chris Jericho's legendary career. Lionheart, the man of a thousand four holes, the champion, all that sort of thing. Absolutely incredible stuff. He's yeah. done the thing that we bury people in WWE for doing, but it's MGF and he pulls it off magnificently. He's read his Wikipedia page. <laughs> yes. And he's put it over because his delivery is so awesome. He really felt like not a performer. Mm. There's an element to MGF stuff where he loves the spotlight and it's all in character. This felt like possibly his most real AEW promo yet. He wasn't trying to bait the crowd. There was no crowd there to bait, of course. He simply came across as this bone-chilling sociopath who's not in the business of riling up the crowd or mocking people. This was sinister stuff, and I was completely wrong in the preview yesterday. He absolutely had to do the sitting down because the amount of heat he generates and how great he is with his off-the-cuff wit, he has to sort of play to the crowd, and I don't think that interaction would have sold just what might be facing Chris Jericho better than the sit-down did. And... It worked perfectly with the word of the day toilet paper dichotomy between this and JR and Chris Jericho in the ring. Oh, Christ, I. Which we'll talk a little bit about later on. Uh, what we got next was the match between Jack Evans and Orange Cassidy. Matt Hardy attacks Orange Cassidy before the uh, match even starts. Immediately, of course, gets ejected, but that allows Jack Evans to take control and, and beat him down, beat him up in the corner. But finally, Orange Cassidy fights back, avoids an elbow in the corner, hits a flying DDT for a two count. Uh, Evans manages to avoid the uh, Orange Punch, but gets hit with one of those tope suicidas by Orange Cassidy, I think, as we go to break there. Uh, eventually, we see... No, we can't have gone to break because I remember what happened in the break of this match uh, because Orange Cassidy hit a diving crossbody, hit a Mishinoku driver, and then did those kicks of his before just about a sequence of a ridiculous number of the standing switches between the two. Uh, eventually, uh, Orange Cassidy climbs the ropes, Evans cuts him off, and they battle on top, and we wonder what's going to go on, and they cut to commercial. You and I watched this on our friends at Fight, so we saw what happened, but for anyone not paying attention in picture-in-picture, picture, it comes back, and the pins already happened. We'd love to know your thoughts on that decision. Uh, basically, what happened was Orange Cassidy small-packaged uh, Jack Evans to get the pinfall victory. Post-match, uh, the HFO come down. Well, sorry, Hardy comes down to attack him. Then uh, the best friends, or Chuck Taylor and, and Wheeler Utah, come down to make the save. The rest of the HFO come down to give them the numbers advantage and just overwhelm them. But thankfully, Jurassic Express come down to run off HFO. That a sample match on the kickoff, on the buy-in. We'll talk about that more on our all-out preview podcast, uh, which will be out over the weekend. And uh, instead, let's talk about the decision, the match and the decision to have the finish go on picture in picture. The match was fun enough. The standing switch spot amused me. Mm, yes. It did. It was pretty much sub Chikara slash house show fun. 
nice bit of variety to the show because it's going to be very intense. You must buy this pay-per-view. We all hate each other at the perfect time sort of fair. So it was nice to get a balance, I suppose. I was quite amused. It wasn't anything special or hilarious. I did enjoy Jack Evans. Total slapstick bumping. Really good. Um, did he say freshly squeeze my ass at one point? <laughs> I don't know, but I wish he did. I feel like he did. I don't know. I just remembered that. Oh, no. um, so that was, it was fun. Nothing more. I'm in support of ending the match in picture-in-picture picture. to a degree. Mm-hmm. I think it's good that they've established that it could happen, right? But at the same time, they're not going to do it all of the time. The precedent that they've set isn't really going to mean anything, and I don't know if it necessarily should. I mean, I guess it's nice. It creates a sense of realism. Mm-hmm. It, In terms of your... TV viewer retention strategy, it in theory, makes people think, oh, a pivotal match might end during picture and picture. It won't, but they might dupe them. If you cast your mind back to October, I think, or November 2019, they established that the TV time remaining thing mm-hmm. isn't just this little concession to something that might realistically happen. John Moxley and Pack fought to a TV time remaining draw. There was simply no time left to continue the match. It was good to establish the precedent at the expense of a narrative hook that would convince people to watch the next episode. What does that mean now? They haven't done enough, AEW in general. They had quite a bit of this in 2020, which was really appreciated, but you know, you have to keep reminding the people of these things. They haven't done enough of establishing the time limit draw in the wonderful drama that comes with the frantic desperation of beating the clock. So I'll reserve judgment on how clever this was. And again, it's the sort of match that no one really cares about deep down. And no one's emotionally invested in Cassidy and Evans. So it's the best choice to do an idea that will only work if you revisit it. As it stands, they haven't done the TV time remaining draw for two years. Two years is a long time in wrestling. It's even more of a long time. It therefore no longer matters. Let it play out, except this time it's not <laughs> ironic because it's AEW, so you're allowed to actually invest in these things. Yeah, I, for a split second, I'll admit, I was like, we're watching on fight, so it's a different experience for us. So the finish happened, and then Excalibur does the, welcome back to Dynamite, the magic's already finished. So it was, that was kind of surreal. I was taken aback because usually you can tell they do a big pan out shot and go, we're back here on Dynamite. It's, it's like, like five seconds of silence. And, and then they didn't do it, I'm thinking... Oh, that must have happened in the break. So it did take me aback. But yeah, I initially went, oh, that's weird. And then I thought, I quite like it, actually, because I always used to think, they used to do this, didn't they, when they had, like, Formula One on ITV here in the UK. And it's it's not like they can go, right, right, lads, we're going to to a break, so no one overtake anyone. Like, you'd come back sometimes, and they'd be like, Schumacher's winning somehow. And you're like, what? So I do like that. And the, the, the way it instills in the audience... Um, the the thought process of it's not just don't look away, i.e. make sure you squint and watch the picture in picture, but it is don't go clicking around elsewhere because you come back and the finish could be happening right then, let alone happening during picture in picture. I, I, I thought it was a nice take on things. And like you say, we'll see where it goes from here genuinely as part of AW going forward. And I wasn't there, you know, this wasn't, 
a main event title match, let's say, that they've gone, well, the title's changed hands in the ads. Like, it's yeah. it's something or nothing, and we get in the match again uh, at All Out on the, on the buy-in, which is a fair trade-up, I suppose, when it comes to the fact that we've lost a match. You know, it's not like they've added another match to, to All Out. I'll say one nice thing about this. Matt Hardy has feud with the entire AEW's mid-card throughout <laughs> the spring and summer of 2021 to the detriment of the mid-card. And I thought they'd abandoned the thread with Jurassic Express. They, in fact, have not. They were probably going to do this 10-man on a Dynamite or a Rampage. Obviously, we know that pack Andrade off the card. So circumstances permitting, they've done it here. That lets you know that they are doing so much work in the background that missing out on a pay-per-view match that they've promoted heavily isn't necessarily a disaster because they've done the work elsewhere. Mm. Ah, God. Matt Hardy isn't doing anything to get these people over realistically, and that's his role. Mm. You're meant to work with an established veteran. and You know, maybe some of the hidden things the dark arts of how to work a match and how to structure a match that we're not completely all fair with mm-hmm. will help the likes of Cassidy. He's an awesome in-ring storyteller anyway. There's an argument to be made that the mainstream of WWE for years and years and years might not be the best necessary way of bringing on talent. Different conversation. The reality is that the knowledge one might accrue from working with a Matt Hardy for several weeks at a time that might inform their experience, their expertise, whatever. It doesn't really entertain me in the moment. You know, just have him as a backstage coach, teaching psychology class, if, mm. that is the, is, if that's the case. No one feels any more hot working with Matt Hardy after the fact. Mm. And that wouldn't be an issue if he wasn't on television <laughs> Every single week, when there are certain performers like Sammy Guevara, Hikaru Shida, several more, John Silver, who aren't getting the same amount of TV time. Yeah. The trade off simply is not in the favor of the audience. I'm getting bored. He's not burying anyone, it's, he's not dragging anyone down, but no one's better off. His opponents, the fans, I still think he's got a role to play. There are certain Matt Hardy promos that have popped me daft, like when he was falling asleep after losing to Christian Cage, because I think his fourth child had just been born. Mm-hmm. He's got a sense of humor. He's done some fabulous bits on BTE. There is a role for Matt Hardy to play. I don't want him to play this one. Yeah, that's fair. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 
Before we go any further, though, this podcast is brought to you by Rocket Money. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you've got no idea where it's going? Well, it's all those subscriptions. I mean, think about it. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it is endless. I'm guilty of this, so I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on, and it was more shocking than a wrestling betrayal. You see, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in cancelled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. That's rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Rocketmoney.com slash wrestling. Right, let's talk about Eddie Kingston and Miro. Now, there are a lot of times on other podcasts, maybe, where you'll say you're talking longer than this actually took place. Normally, when it's regards to a match yes. on Monday Night Raw, for example. That's going to happen here, because I've already talked about it for about 20 seconds. This whole thing went 54 seconds, I believe. I glanced at it on the Twitter today so I could get this all verbatim. It was something like that. And yeah, we're going to pile the praise on this and talk about how Miro is quite possibly your favourite wrestler in AEW right now. So, we start with Eddie Kingston. Um, they haven't really done a lot, I think it's fair to say, to sell this match. Miro said, I want to I speak to Eddie Kingston. Then he unmasked and murdered Fuego Del Sol. And then Eddie Kingston came out and brawled with him on Rampage. So Eddie Kingston, cutting a promo, talks about the kryptonite of Miro. His Achilles heel. His neck. That's why people keep going for the DDT. He's going to be going after everything that Miro desires, that TNT championship. Because if he wins that, if Miro loses it, he's no longer God's favorite. He says to Miro, take my hand. We're going to walk through hell together. What a line. Uh, and maybe... If you survive that, you're going to go to your God's heaven. It switches to Miro. And Miro says, you know, you talk about all this bollocks, basically. I didn't get the first bit of it, but he says, because I was too excited to write this line down. <clears throat> God's favourite only stays down for his wife in a hotel room after a victory. He says that the Mad King will realize that redemption only comes after agony. He says, I'm coming to bring both. This is the word of the Redeemer. 54 seconds that sold me on this match instantly. A few dissenting voices, and I understand where they are coming from because I would lap up all of this that could be delivered to me, and I hope this feud isn't over. It must continue. Uh, there's no irony. This yeah. feud literally, <laughs> literally must continue. A few dissenting voices saying, oh, this is great. I want more of it. Do you? Or do you want two incredible badasses drenched in machismo to sell you on a match in under a minute? If they can do that, let them do it. That's awesome. It allows more space for epic matches, big angles, longer promos on the show. It is the ultimate in what a pro wrestler should do, economy. Like, everything's so bloated. The only thing we're worried about at All Out, which looks like an awesome card on paper, is AEW's propensity, consistent with the wider trends of pro wrestling, to give people far too much and to exhaust them. If you can do your stuff to this incredible level and get it over 
in a tiny amount of time. Yes, please, thank you. You don't need any more than this. Me and Murray have got contrasting wrestling philosophies. He says it's better when it's totally basic. And not basic as in bad, but the most elemental stuff done expertly. Mm. I prefer an intricate saga along the lines of a hangman page in Kenny Omega. My God, I almost had a paradigm shift to my own watching this. How much more needed to be done other than this immaculate one minute of television? The story is so goddamn simple. And it's delivered in such a cool way. Eddie Kingston saying, take my hand and walk through hell. <laughs> That's like, what I love about Eddie Kingston is that he sees an honor in fighting. And I love that. And what I love about Miro is that he is simply just the man at the moment. Top shagger, invincible hard bastard, scary individual. This match is going to rule because Eddie Kingston, as promised, is going to drop him on his neck with suplexes. The near falls are going to be electrifying. The tough guy machismo, no-selling posturing is going to be just proper, real champs. And for all the people who say, oh, you know, AEW does all this flippy bollocks and kicks out of everything. This match centers around a DDT, let's not forget. Yeah. Like, I'm not, put, you know, besmirching the DDT, but in terms of the maneuvers that we see in AEW... Pretty basic. Yeah. It's a DDT. Yeah, this is just going to rule so hard. Like the bare elements of this are so great. Eddie Kingston says, "I'm going to break your neck." That's a scary, cool threat. In response, Miro says, mm, "I only lie down when my wife sits on my cack." <laughs> <laughs> you put him over as this invincible ladies man except he's loyal as well he's only mm. got one lady in his life his hot flexible wife I said this to you this morning I might actually agree for once with a live sex celebration on a wrestling television show if Mira wins this Jesus Christ <laughs> um, just the most badass stuff Yeah, proper badass stuff I love it Muggle uh, then we got a video package promoting Moxley versus Kojima for All Out which Moxley called him a crazy ass old man Tickled me. Love that. He says he's going to do egregious, felonious violence. That's awesome as to well. To a 50-year-old. <laughs> That's going to be lit as well. Uh, right, let's talk about, we mentioned it earlier, let's talk about Chris Jericho's response to MJF, his in-ring interview with Jim Ross, who was very emotional. You were loving this. Very emotional. Oh, my God. What a great carny. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. Yes. Either Jim Ross is put on the performance of a lifetime by being genuinely emotional at the prospect of someone he's close with, Lest we forget, Jim Ross and Chris Jericho were having conversations with the Khans in 2019 before we even knew anything. They are linked together. They told us how far away, how far they've, uh, how long, sorry, they've been linked together. Mm, yeah. Um, if Jim Ross wasn't visibly upset at the idea that this is one of the last times he can sell or even call a Chris Jericho fight, and he's worked this what a performance from yeah. Jim Ross the guy gets buried because he's a bit of a pervert and he makes loads of mistakes and doesn't care that much about certain aspects of AEW's in ring I have to put him over mm -hmm. specifically to the hilt here incredible work and if it isn't a work great <laughs> have people show emotions because that's mm. what it's all about. Well, I'm not sure about that. No 
No emotions in wrestling, mate. Come on. Uh, Jericho gets on the mic and does, Welcome to Chicago is Jericho. He talks about starting his main event journey in this business 22 years ago in Chicago. Uh, talked about JR recruiting him, as you mentioned, uh, to start that journey. JR, quivering in his voice, uh, asked why he picked such an extreme stipulation for this match with MJF. And Chris uh, said, good question. Just very quickly, MJF, you're a piece of sh. basically. <laughs> uh, he said, look, you're, you are, though, you're diabolical, you're arrogant, you're just like me, and all you've got over me are those three victories, and I just can't let it go. The reason I'm here, the reason I came here, the reason why this whole thing started is because I can't be complacent. Look, there's never a guarantee that AEW is going to succeed, but yet here we are, episode 101, as the hottest... <laughs> wrestling company in the world today. Huge bap. Uh, <laughs> said, look, I could stick around for longer. I could have matches wherever I fancy with whoever I fancied. But every time I look in the mirror, I'd think you couldn't be MJF. But you know what? I don't want this to be the end. I want more. I don't want it to stop. And that's why I have to take the chance. If something goes wrong on Sunday and his journey ends right where it began in Chicago, so be it. He's going to move to the commentary desk. He's going to thank everyone for their support. But he said MJF's not going to take this away from him. If MJF wants to take him out, he's going to have to be the best he's ever been. Break every bone, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not going to happen. God damn it. He's Chris Jericho. MJF doesn't have what it takes to get rid of him. And he says, concludes by saying, I'll see you on Sunday all out, you little prick. <laughs> Again, another terrific verbal performance on a show just Absolutely resplendent in exceptional promo work. Um, this was another great promo. Jim Ross sold it. There was one little detail that I loved about Chris Jericho's promo here. The whole promo was great. The idea that if you're going to be generous about this, and I'm a generous reviewer because I believe in the product and the thought and the passion that goes into crafting it. Being MJF once for him isn't necessarily a measure that he's won the feud. It's just a relief at this point. He kind of accepts that MGF is the better guy. He's beaten him three times. He just needs to beat him once for the sake of his ability to continue to do this. That might be a generous interpretation. What I love about this promo was in the first line, Chicago is Jericho because for two years of his AEW career, Chris Jericho has repelled any chance of Y2J. Bit of a dickheaded fashion. These people are chanting his name because they like him. He's going, shut up. I'm not Y2J anymore. I reinvent myself all of the time. He's like, he loves being the reinvention yeah. guy. And, I, yeah, so he should. It's impossible to stay over as long as he has without getting resented in weekly, all of the time pro wrestling. He's done a tremendous job, and God damn it, he knows it as much as anybody else. They checked my name, huh? Piss off. <laughs> Chant the new name. I'm a reinventor. For him to dial back the years and enjoy being an older version of Chris Jericho was such a smart, subtle move because it put over the idea of, oh, this is the last time he does it. Why not get a little bit of call and response because I love this crowd so much. I love the adoration I get from this crowd. If I have to do one more promo to build one more match, I'm going to indulge myself one more time. Exquisite detail. Like, genuinely, if you think about how much he hates the Y2J stuff, 
to do a little snippet of Y2J really brought home. Maybe you just want to do one more shortcut to a pop because that might be the last time he gets a pop to build a match. Yeah, really, really nice stuff. And as you alluded to, he came out to Judas and appreciated it. But there was that look in his eye of like, this could be one of the last times this is happening. I don't think it is, but they've worked it yes. so fabulously. Uh, another great video package came next. A response to CM Punk effectively from, from Darby Allen saying, look, you know, CM Punk said when he was if he was 15, he'd be a fan of him. Well, when I was 15, I was a fan of CM Punk. But he talked about feeling overlooked. He said CM Punk said he was first on his list. Well, I should be the last name on the list. I know, I know what I need to do, though, to correct all these problems and issues that I'm having with all this. I have to beat CM Punk in Chicago or die trying. And you sense that he will. Again. Not beat him, but he'll die trying. AEW are fabulous at conveying a real sense of high drama and anxiety about these matches and the stakes behind them. We'll get to that in the main event. Jesus Christ, I'm terrified of this cage match. <laughs> this was, again, exceptional. This first hour of Dynamite, outside of the post-match of the Orange Cassidy, was just un-goddamn believable. And speaking of unbelievable, this was so believable. Who else was going to be Darby Allen? Straight-edge punk guy who named himself after a legend of the punk scene. Of course CM Punk is going to be his favorite wrestler. Of course CM Punk has been saying that line in media and on TV to build to this line to further the strand of mutual respect. Awesome. And I also love the idea of Darby Allen recognizing a few things that we've noted of our. Wasn't it nice that Darby Allen CM Punk's first opponent? The implication being the first of many on his way to a main event world title run. And Darby Allen's like, no, do not piss me off and patronize me. Mm. I've wanted that. I've wanted Phil Brooks to be CM Punk. I got everything I needed out of something I was being very pedantic about. Perfection. Then we got Powerhouse Hobbs versus Brian Cage. Been waiting a while for the fallout from this and Brian Cage and Team Taz. And felt like it was worth the wait because they beat the crap out of each other here. Brian Cage attacking Hobbs during his entrance, hoying him into the barricade, hooks there at ringside. He distracts uh, Cage to allow Hobbs to cut him off with an elbow drop. Um, Hobbs mocks Cage, then just hits him with a sodding flatliner in response. Uh, and the, the finish of this sees uh, both men go for finishers. Hobbs hit a huge spine buster for a two count. Uh, Cage comes back, hits a rising knee and a sort of F5. Outside in vertical suplex just defies logic what he could do, especially with someone the size of powerhouse Hobbs. Um, but as Cage looks like he's got the match won and, and he's about to finish him off and finally get that redemption, Hook jumps up on the apron in his leather trousers, distracts the official, and that allows um, Hobbs to push uh, Brian Cage into the ropes where Ricky Starks, the absolute priest that he is, jumps up on there, twats him with the FTW Championship. Hobbs hits his finisher. One, two, three. What a brawl. I've got... Uh, I don't want to piss on your chips. I've got a take here. Mm -hmm. AEW's long-term storytelling is in fact sometimes so long-term and so well thought out in advance and so well foreshadowed before the actual factions implode and the conflicts arise that sometimes like, a really fun or a quite fun match that this was, physically impressive, some cool moments, just buckle under the weight of 
the expectation that That's it fair. presents for itself. Ordinarily, in a vacuum, I'd have enjoyed this match a lot more if they'd not invested so much TV time in it. And of, of course, as we've said quite often, Brian Cage isn't really it. He's a really fun worker for his genre, the whole incredulous Christ, him doing that. He's not a big episodic TV guy yeah. who you can really embark on an emotionally invested journey in. In a vacuum, something like this would have been way more fun. But the fact that they spent so long building to it, when it actually happens, sometimes these things can only resonate as an anticlimax. Yeah. Certain matches and certain characters don't necessarily fit the big sprawling saga of AEW's trademark in-house storytelling. Mm. And I couldn't help but feel like all of that for this, this is fun in a vacuum, nothing more, and yet they've built this bastard for ages, and I'm thinking, oh, that was a decent payoff, I guess. The actual thought behind timing of the finish, mwah, really well done. Yeah. Leathered him with a belt. I forgot Ricky Starks was there. Really nice heel stuff. Um, but again, sometimes you just need to get to the bloody point. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, another great promo came yeah. next. Uh, Alistair Black sitting in a room uh, calling out people for fights. I mean, I it's exactly the same as WWE. I'm joking. I'm just saying. Say, he actually has the fight, asshole. Yeah, I know. Just, we sent you, I, I sent know, you I earlier know. in the office. That's exactly what performative twats are going to say on Twitter today. Mm, how's this different from what he did in WWE? Well, probably because he keeps kicking people's heads off and he was again on Friday on Rampage. Malachi Black, of course, is talking about Lee Johnson. He's given him seven days to atone for his involvement at the end of last week's Dynamite. He said he didn't run off from Lee Johnson. He'd done what he needs to do. Kill the Andersons. And speaking of which, he's going to murder Lee Johnson and place coins on his eyes so he can pay the bloke at the River Sticks when he sends him to hell, basically. That visual is going to look awesome. Yes. He's going to kill Lee Johnson. The, he's alluded as well. This one's not going to be a squash. There's no, a coded message. Enjoy, it, yeah. enjoy it. Take my time. This is going to be like the proper Alistair Black does a back and forth. Uh, Malachi Black does a back and forth. Is this the first potential one where he does the... Raising the red on his foot thing, by do you reckon? Potential. Potentially. Potentially it happens. It feels a little bit corny, but in all, in all the best ways, this eye thing. If, in fact, it looks like he has murdered a man in the middle of the ring, the coins on the eye, that could be an awesome, quite stirring visual thumbnail potential. Yeah. Oh, yes. Very good point. Uh, right. Let's talk about what happened next. It's QT Marshall. Sorry, one more thing before I get in the mood with this. <laughs> I'm so glad he foreshadowed it and told you what he was going to do. Not only does it make him more convincing and believable because he actually puts his actions, uh, where he just does what he says he's going to do, yeah, yeah, essentially. Yeah. If he hadn't said the symbolism behind what he's going to do on Friday, poor Excalibur as he's been asked to do too often, would have to, like, recap an entire debutant's career in, mm. like, a minute. That's a, that's a blade! That's the Japanese death le yeah. legend Luther. Hades! People think, what? River sticks! Hades! Read about his school, remember? Don't be the ferryman! <laughs> it's yeah. Christopher! <laughs> right. QT Marshall's in the ring. He's got the factory with him. What is this? He calls out Paul White, heavyweight to heavyweight, he says. That did tickle me. I'll give him that. Paul White comes out. 
he knows exactly what he's about to get into. Steps in the ring and QT Marshall sets everyone in the factory on him. And they do that thing where they beat him down in a corner and he explodes out of it. Everyone goes flying. Uh, he choke slams someone. Aaron Solo's like, don't worry, lads, I've got this. I'm climbing up the top rope. Jumps off. Just takes him out of the air, basically. And the gun club slide in the ring. Great slide, I'll say that. From Billy Gunn, lovely slide, slides into the ring to flank the big show, sorry, to flank Paul White, muscle memory there, uh, and uh, and cover him off. QT Marshall gets a chair, goes to jump in, gets just pushed off the apron, basically. And you think, oh, what was that, bollocks? And then, uh, Mom, can we have the shield breaking up? No, we've got the shield breaking up at home. <laughs> Billy Gunn just hits Paul White with a chair. I initially thought that was an awful chair shot because he's missed the, the part of his back that he's meant to be hitting, obviously. But... Nice, nice uh, cover, not cover, actually good explanation from commentary, basically saying they're going for that surgically repaired hip of his. Yeah, Billy Gunn, uh, Billy Gunn hits him uh, in the hip, keeps battering him uh, a couple of times with the chair and stands over him as QT just can't believe what he's seeing. And as they leave, everyone else in the factory comes in, picks up Paul White and uh, QT Marshall hits an assisted diamond cutter on White uh, um, on Paul White. What did you think of the gun club betraying Paul White here, Sitch? Right. <laughs> because he wears the T-shirts or the shirts, QT Marshall, that is, I'm going to do a very bad Tony Soprano impression. Oh. How could this happen? How could this happen? How could Billy Gunn and Paul White have a feud in AEW in 2021? I'm serious. I was mystified by this development, mystified that they would do Paul White and Billy Gunn on telly in 2021 in AEW, but I'm legitimately asking myself, how could this happen? How could, uh, people, myself included, look at that diggity stacked AEW roster in 2021, and you worry how they're going to accommodate all of these names. The rotating cast, very good, but at the same time, People will forget about certain people, and it's hard to keep people hot. Yeah, at the same time, where's Hikaru Shida in all this? And I'm thinking, right, well, who hasn't been on telly for a while? Who was getting over on telly big to the point where you'd kind of want to push them and make money off them and present them as stars because people want to receive them as stars? Where's Sammy Guevara? All right, well, his TV time is now even greater premium because uh, Paul White's having a feud with Billy Gunn in 2021. Where's Hikaru Shida? Hasn't done anything on TNT since Double or Nothing. Uh, Riho, thank Christ, is back and is fine after her um, poor adverse reaction to the vaccine. Still get vaccinated, you assholes. Oh, she can't really be in it because there's one women's match per week. Can there be two? No, we've got to make way for Paul White versus Billy Gunn in 2021. How could this happen? People say, oh, that's too much. You've got Kenny Omega. You've got Hangman Page. You've got John Moxie. You've got CM Punk. You've got... Brian Danielson, you've got Eddie Kingston, you've got Miro, you've got MJF, you've got Chris Jericho, you've got like, all of these names. This roster is unbelievable. Cody Rhodes, Malachi Black, the Young Bucks. How can you fit all of these, even on three hours? Well, there's got to be a way because we're doing Paul White versus Billy Gunn in 2021 on AEW. How could this happen? I don't get... I, my mind was destroyed by this segment. You get... God, just three hours of TV time. This roster... How does this happen? Yeah, I think it speaks volumes that when you and I 
met up or walking into work today on this show with all that happened on it, from the, the Miro Kingston promo to the return of Anna Jay, we'll get to in a second, to the, the closing angle, to everything that happened, FTR, Santana and Ortiz, MJF, Chris Jericho. The first thing we said was, so Billy Gunn tagged a big show with the chair last night. Billy Gunn is loved backstage. Mm. By all accounts, he's big banter, Billy Gunn. Really good coach. He's a coach, goddammit. He's not a TV star. So that's a bit of nepotism, again, creeping into AEW at the expense of loads of people I want to see wrestle. Sammy Guevara, Hikaru Shida, John Silver. Mm. How could this happen? Um, and Paul White, after looking lean and svelte and somewhat mobile in the last couple of times he's had to do something vaguely physical, looked thrashed mm. here. Slow, lumbering. You know, he's selling it to some extent. Let's move on. More concerning is the, the fact that Andy Murray pointed out, oh, no, this isn't going to be a one-minute KO punch match now. We've got a body part to work, a brother. I was going to work the hip for 20 minutes, and I was like, oh, God. Anyway, uh, cheeky bastard this year is Britt Baker had a special announcement next about a free agent signing a long-term contract with AEW. Before that, though, uh, she announced she's bringing some star power to the Casino Battle Royale. Reba and uh, Jamie Hayter are being added into it. The numbers in that are... I think there's only two spaces left. Where you have to be some, I don't know, iconic names to fill those <laughs> two spots. Anyway, he, she says, uh, one of the hottest stars in all of pro wrestling has just signed a long-term contract with AEW, guaranteed to keep the rating sky high. And that name is Britt Baker. Brilliant. She can uh, make a match as well as that whenever she wants. So she's going to be facing Chris Statlander on Friday. Uh, cheeky this, but I enjoyed it. I, th- I thought it was absolutely unbelievable. She knew what exactly she was doing. What a, a marvellous, resourceful bit of TV time this was. It built two matches, a rampage in the paper. It was a wonderful platform for Britt Baker to be piss funny and a great heel and read it very much as a tacit tease that Adam Cole is in fact going to sign with AEW. I don't think she does this no. knowing that Adam Cole I can't wait to see him in AEW. I cannot wait. Basically, ever rising Adam Cole made me not quit doing the NXT podcasts and now that three of them, the three that I like, other than Cameron Grimes, mm-hmm. you know, I like Thatcher and Champ being there, being facetious. Yeah. You've got three yeah, of the yeah. guys I really like in NXT, in AEW, as Vince McMahon seizes control of what is ostensibly going to be main event with greener talent. I'm so excited. Can we please retire the NXT podcast? <laughs> yeah, it might be time to take it around the b- back of the shed and put two bullets in the back of the shed. <laughs> Double tap, boom, boom. Uh, I may have just said she's facing Chris Woof, woof, boom, boom. <laughs> I may have just said she's facing Chris Dallin on Friday. I've I got that wrong, of course. It's going to be Reba and Jamie Hayter in a handicap match on uh, Rampage on Friday, which we'll preview on the, the Friday podcast about Rampage. Anyway, uh, Penelope Ford, Tay Conti was next. Immediately, Tay Conti uh, dives off the apron to hit a crossbody on both of them because the bunny is, of course, there from what happened on Rampage on Friday. She's hoying uh, Ford all over the 
uh, all over the ring after the bell rings, of course. Uh, turns a backbreaker into a roll-up for a two-count. She gets a pump kick. It's another two-count. Comes off or goes to go off the top ropes, but Ford pushes them to send her crashing to the mat as we head into the ads. Uh, Ford later on hits a handspring spear. Then Conti comes back with a slam uh, for a near fall. Ford goes for the mutter lock, but uh, Conti fights out of it. She puts the calf slicer on, and Ford struggles to get to the ropes. Um Conti's still in control when Ford counters with a double-knee gut buster for a nice two-count. And Ford takes the official to allow Bunny to get involved. It looks like we're just going to see a repeat of what we saw on Friday. But Conti shoves her off the apron, rolls up Ford, one, two, three. And then, yet again, another correct call by you and I. Uh, it is the numbers game again. Penelope Ford and the Bunny beating down Tay Conti post-match when who should return but Anna Jay to chase them off. Tay Conti is clearly ecstatic for this. I think she was meant to be out for potentially up to 12 months, only just six, seven months after she injured her shoulder in training. Anna Jay is back. She's going to be part of the Casino Battle Royal. It was a very quick call in Excalibur's ear by Tony Khan. Yeah, I know. We like the bollocks. So anyway. basically, Miro and Kip Sabian take eight months to get the friggin' match with uh, best friends. Eight long months. And this one takes eight milliseconds. Yeah. It literally, she returns. Everyone's a member of the Anna Jay community. And, and Jim Ross is. Yeah, and um, Tony Cox goes, get rid of the Casino Bar Royal. Bloody hell, we need more women in there. That's basically what happened. But yes, what did you make of Anna Jay's return in this match? Actual narrative development. A nice anti-Vince Russo energy to the post-match. Thank Christ, can you imagine if he booked this? You conniving bitch, you took my spot when you were away. You don't know what I'm I think I've got yeah. AJ Styles and Anna Jay confused. Yeah. <laughs> She's not actually a hick. Um, so, really nice Question post. Is, you know, whilst Take On, he was, was doing all this, what was Anna Jay doing before? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm sorry I interrupted you. I just love AJ, man. Love taking the piss out what of AJ. He's what a guy. Great, great source of material. Um, Hot little match, not in a Jim Ross way, but like a really, <laughs> a really well worked match. And I say well worked because the continued slot that the women get means that fans at this point have been conditioned to go, right, it's a women's match. It's the buffer before the important things with the men. So, Conti got a nice pop, but they are conditioned to think, oh, this isn't really significant. Because I know, as an audience member, that it's the thing that happens. Well, if I want to get something out of the way to convince you to come to the main event, they had a nice match yeah. that was quite snug, convincing. Conti's stuff, the strikes look great. There's still a little bit of a footwork thing that I'm sure will come with more and more reps. They really worked the crowd into it. Loads of nice little strikes, submissions. Just a nicely put together match that the crowd really got into because they are well behind Conti, whose facial expressions were great. Situationally different demeanor considering the events that happened to her on Friday. She didn't just do her entrance pose. She did it to a degree, but she had a stone-faced, I'm going to mess somebody up because I'm pissed off demeanor. Love that. Yeah. Absolutely love that. Um, this was genuinely another promising development in a women's division that really needs to deliver on those promises mm. consistently. 
Uh, Thunder Rose is backstage before with the main event, uh, getting questioned about her chances in the Battle Royal. Uh, when in comes Nyla Rose and Jade Cargill to beat her up, basically. And she says, is this supposed to intimidate me? Because if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down swinging. She tries to fight both of them off. But again, it's Nyla Rose and Jade Cargill working together. They beat her down. And then they go to face, face-to-face when uh, Smart Mark Sterling steps in between them. Cleverly, good, makes sense, and, and bargains with them and with uh, Vicky Guerrero, who's, of course, the manager of Nyla Rose, to say, look, there's money to be made if we don't go on it. Let's save this for Sunday, girl, sort of thing. Uh, and they leave Thunder Rosa laid out before the pay-per-view. Nice little breadcrumbs. You're going to get the Nyla Rose, Jay Cargill showdown, and it's going to get a pop, and they've built it as an organic layer in the match. It's the sort of thing that happens in most battle royals, the fact that they've done a little bit of a tease of that on telly, hopefully will inform the moment when it happens. They've done a decent, by their standards, which aren't particularly great in booking women's wrestling, they've done a decent job of like threading little hooks into the match and dangling them so that fans can pick up on it mm. in Chicago when it actually happens. It's bare minimum stuff, to be honest, but at least they are doing it. Right, let's get to the eight-man main event. It was the Elite, the Young Bucks, and the Gubrillas, that is, of the Elite, to take on the Lucha Bros and Jurassic Express ahead, of course, the Young Bucks versus Lucha Bros in a steel cage for the tag titles on Sunday. The big men started off, Gallows and Luchasaurus, big strikes from the both of them. Uh, Luchasaurus hit a nice vertical suplex to bring in Ray Phoenix, and Nick Jackson. Uh, they have a nice back and forth again. They tag in their brothers, effectively, for both of them um, for, for a nice little exchange. Um, early on, you know, sort of back and forth action. I think we go to a break quite early on in the match, uh, during which Jungle Boy got power bombed on the apron. Then it starts to get good. Uh, Ray Phoenix computer game. I don't know how to describe it. Like, I want to say Ray Phoenix hops all around the ropes, but that doesn't give it enough justice. Computer games is the only way I can describe it. Bounces, bottom rope, middle rope, other rope, next to your rope, over, legs not on the rope, legs on the rope, hips on the rope. I don't you know what he does. Anyway, he hits a step-up springboard arm drag, basically, uh, on, uh, on Nick Jackson after fighting off Carl Anderson. Penta uh, hits a thrust kick and then... Missile drop kicks someone's ass. Uh, Matt breaks up the pin attempt. Uh, Nick hit a mad arm drag combo thing as well. And then all of them, all four of them are going to be in the tag match on Sunday. Super kick each other for, to knock everyone down. Great stuff. In comes Luchasaurus later uh, to take on Carl Anderson. Hits a choke slam, hits a standing moonsault, gets a two count off that. In comes Penta. They set up for the fear factor, but... The official's distracted, and of course, that git. Brandon Cutler gets involved to cold spray Ray Phoenix's uh, eyes, and that allows the Good Brothers to hit a magic killer on him for a near fall. Great stuff there. And again, reiterating the need for a steel cage on Sunday. Ray Phoenix counters a BTE trigger, hits a double handspring cutter on the books. That looked great. Fights off the Good Brothers, but that allows uh, the books to recover, catch him in a crossbody, and hit the Meltzer driver one Two, three. I'll tell you what, let's talk the match, and then we'll talk the fallout of the match afterwards. Uh, the match was awesome. It took a little bit while to get going, but when it did, it was just a furious adrenaline festival that you'd obviously expect, given the people involved in it. This accomplished subtly two things. When Jungle Boy got taken out, he at least got taken out. That apron bump was absolutely brutal. It's one of those things where you can't recap it. There's not a particularly great story 
or a particularly substantial story, you know what you're going to get. Um, they'll tell a more substantial one on Sunday, I, I'm sure. But for now, it was a tease of the great wrestling you're going to see. But in addition to that, the Young Bucks and Lucha Brothers have had better matches. They've been involved in better matches together than this, which was still on the four-star level because it was absolutely ballistic by the end. But I was watching their stuff closely, and I don't think they've ever been as locked in to their incredible chemistry mm. in considering the ambition of the stuff they do to each other, how good that chemistry has to be. They've never looked as locked in to what they can do together as they did for these brief, thrilling glimpses of uh, what's going to happen on Sunday. They worked incredibly well together. I was desperate to see the match following this. They did a nice little story beat with the double super kicks to establish the idea of they are so locked in and they are so close together in terms of the quality level mm -hmm. that they are super kicking each other in the face with inch perfect time and they're inseparable, basically. That was the thread that you were asked to pick up. Their work together just looked phenomenal. And it's so weird. Pinning your challenger, in, which is what they did here with Phoenix, ordinarily... I would bury. Maybe it's biased. But is it a clue that there's actually going to be a title switch? Mm, yeah. Is it an overt... Are they playing on the knowledge of our history of how these things happen in WWE to make us think that one's going to happen? Otherwise, if they beat them twice, is that the best idea? We'll find out on Sunday. But it was certainly effective in the moment to make you think, oh, well, they're going to win at the pay-per-view. Because there's no distractions at the pay-per-view. And they were going very distraction mad again in this eight man their work was electrifying to the point where i'm thinking they're gonna have a surefire match of the year candidate even more sure than i was this time yesterday yeah i i, I think the thing is ace like you say they're playing on the audience's knowledge of usually the losers on on sunday stand tall on the, the tv beforehand that doesn't mean anything when it comes to aw because yeah. they, they they're more complicated than that and like you say Lucha Bros were winning until Brandon Cutler got involved with the cold spray and they were going for one of their finishers so yeah like you say I, I don't think it takes anything away uh, and it was all about what happened after this as well Kenny Omega with his new black hair comes out he wants to put some air salt in that pepper I think it's distracting mm. yeah he uh, he's flanked by Michael Nakazawa of course that's the very first thing I've said on this podcast that is vaguely critical of Kenny Omega <laughs> ever ever um, so they obviously ridiculous numbers game allows them to beat up the baby faces Omega's just cutting promo on them as he's doing this taunting all of them uh, they put I think Luchasaurus through a table with a magic killer and Christian Cage of course he's challenging Omega on Sunday for the title he comes out to attack him but it's the numbers game it's what the elite always rely upon he gets overwhelmed and then Omega gets on the mic and talks about having a lovely lovely dinner a lovely chat with uh, with Tony Khan um, but he does have to be careful with his belongings. He's stolen the key or whatever it is, the lever or whatever it is, tells Don Callis to lower the cage to allow them to, to beat up all the people they're going to be facing on Sunday without anyone getting in. So, you know, it's the, it was, I think it was JR who said, this is meant to be keeping them out on Sunday, but right now, right now it's keeping them trapped in with all their opponents, effectively. People run down to try and get into the cage, uh, Marco, can't, it's a cage, it's great. Yeah, Marco Stunt uh, tries to climb up, gets cold sprayed. Same with sort of Dante Martin, Frankie Kazarian, obviously, is there, Orange Cassidy. 
Um, cold spray for everyone, basically, and kendo sticks for everyone, too, that just get whipped around everyone. Uh, they've handcuffed the Lucha Bros to the ropes. They hit thrust kicks on just about everyone. And then together, they all hit the BTE trigger on Christian as the show goes off the air. And this wild conclusion, the elites stand tall before all out, Michael Sidgwick. Yeah, it felt more confusing and labored than the chaos they were going for. The fact that I didn't have this white hot heat backdrop, and I think I love Kenny Omega, and I'm going to tell you why I love Kenny Omega in a second. But his kind of stilted delivery amid all this chaos just made it feel way more baggy and contrived yeah, than I yeah. think they were going for. So I wasn't the biggest fan of the post match angle in terms of the execution. The idea was great. It, the, the execution was iffy. I'll not lie about that because why would I? I love the idea of them attempting to scale this enormous cage that they cannot, in fact, successfully scale because it is a cage that is enormous, designed to keep people out of it. If only there was footholds going to the side of it, that would have really been helpful. Yeah, I know. I know. So that was great in air in theory. Kenny Omega playing this arch, exaggerated theatrical character is the only person who can get over the concept of a cage-lowering mechanism, or whatever he said, yes. over. And I'll tell you what, there were certain points throughout the show with various camera angles, and I thought, oh, they've got the cage up there. And I'm thinking, oh, God, they've got the cage up there. Uh, they're going to do the WWE thing where it magically lowers because, listen, you idiots, watch this. You're going to get a cage match on Sunday, right? Got it, message received. I know what a cage match is. You must see the cage. <laughs> You'll see the ladders. Like, I'm not an idiot. So I thought it was going to magically lower. Yeah. But the fact that they've done that little wrinkle, that little storyline detail, no matter how, you know, cartoonish. Tony Khan's cage-lowering button. Do not push. Yeah, it's a bit daft, but at the same time, I'm so glad they went to the effort because I hate the cage magically lowers because you idiots wouldn't think to think about it. You have to see it because you're morons. So they addressed that with a cute, wacky storyline detail that I appreciated, and they sold the power of the cage, and they beat down the baby faces you want to see win on Sunday. Just mostly glorious stuff end-to-end -end in the main event segment, but I did think that it was just a bit messy. Yes, yeah. Maybe they went a bit early, I don't know. Like you say, it just felt like, oh, do this and do this, and like you say, he's like, oh, watch out for this guy, oh, hit him with a kendo stick, yeah. do this now. It felt a bit Or much. maybe Callus. Like, Kenny Omega is a sensational promo. Callus is probably, because he's a great promo and a better commentator, is better at this kind of running commentary yes. stuff that Kenny Omega does do a lot. And Kenny had to get physical as well, so he kept hanging the hand in the mic to yeah, people. Yeah, it doesn't always land this running commentary bit. Sometimes it does, this time it didn't. Callus being a great promo and a great commentator, should do this running commentary bit. Mm, yeah, absolutely. But in terms of a lot of what they did on this show, in terms of getting people to do the old shut up and take my money, I think they couldn't have done a lot more ahead of Sunday. Yeah, definitely. Great go-home show. Yeah, and looking forward to Rampage as well on Friday night. Uh, let us know your thoughts on AEW Dynamite, though, on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Well, actually, they can follow both of us. You can follow Michael Sidgwick at... M. Sidgwick. You can follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at WhatCultureWWE. And make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts. As I mentioned, the AEW Rampage preview will be there tomorrow. And later on today, myself, Sidg, and Andy are going to be talking all about the potential of Daniel Bryan 
Brian, or as I should start calling him more often, Brian, Brian Danielson, Danielson in AEW. God, ambassador, they are spoiling us. Right, uh, okay. We'll still get uh, Billy Gunn versus Paul White. <laughs> yeah, swings and roundabouts. Yeah. How, how can this Anyway, <laughs> this has been the AEW Dynamite Review. My thanks to Michael Sidgwick. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you soon.